The following message is from the 2012 IBCD Summer Institute, Changed by Grace. Uh, thank you, Jim and uh, Craig, for all that you've been doing. It's been a wonder, wonderful blessing to be a part of this conference thus far. It's been a surprising conference in many ways. I suppose as a professor at seminary and as a pastor, you think you know a lot. And uh, one of the things I learned very quickly is when you come to a conference like this is how little you actually do know. Uh, one of the things that surprised me most was how Tim Lane was such a sinner. I didn't realize how much he had trouble with his wife and children. Um, I'm, I'm surprised we didn't spend some time in corporate prayer for Tim and his family uh, in light of the many travails and temptations that he faces as a gospel minister, father, and husband. So if you would remember Tim in your prayers, I'm sure he would greatly appreciate that. But it's also been a joy to be a part of this uh, uh, conference because of its focus on the gospel. Uh, because I'm just going to tell you up, right up front the bottom line. In fact, I can probably stop talking after I say this. Only the gospel transforms lives. That's it. So thank you very much. We'll have the offering now passed out. And... <laughs> but isn't that true? Isn't it? Only the gospel can change lives. And that's been a theme that's been running throughout this conference, and I hope through all the workshops as well. But you know what the problem is? We don't believe it. Did you hear that? Only the gospel can change lives, but we don't believe it. And that's the critical need, not only for yourselves as individual Christians before a holy God that wants to be more like Christ, but the critical need for those who you're trying to reach and encourage and help change is to believe the gospel, to believe all that's promised in the gospel, to believe all the power present in the gospel. And we don't. And so uh, along with the disciples who were there, who's there with Jesus day in and day out, I want to cry out, Lord, help my unbelief. When I encounter difficulties, conflicts, trials and temptations, I want to run through the, you know, to the bookstore and get seven steps for a greater marriage or seven steps for a greater you. When actually all, all I should do is go back to the gospel, believe in the gospel, and allow the gospel to so penetrate and bathe my life that I live according to that promise and its truth. And as we come to our topic tonight about loving our enemies, what can be more important than, again, the gospel? Because I don't know if you're like me, but I have a really hard time loving my enemies. Because often my enemies are the ones that are closest to me. In my own home at times. In my own church, I call them EGR people, extra grace required people. <laughs> and let's face it, there are people in our lives, those whom we love and cherish, that require the most grace and faith in our lives. Yes, there are enemies outside, but I think when, when we look at this text tonight, you're going to discover that Jesus isn't just talking in kind of, kind of general terms about, you know, those enemies out there in the world those political forces that are railed against the U.S. of A. No, I'm sorry, I won't be talking about that. But I'm going to be talking about you, your hearts, and your relationships. Believers and unbelievers who oftentimes treat you like an enemy 
and force you and cause you to respond in ways that are not Christ-like. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Some of you have heard a sermon that I've done on this, but we're going to be looking at two separate passages and how they work together. So I think it's important to see what Jesus is doing here. And then look at another passage of Scripture in Romans, where I think the Apostle Paul picks up on these similar themes of Jesus and further elaborates on what does it mean to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to the end of the chapter, to 48. This is God's word. Listen carefully. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that now your Spirit would help us not only to understand these words, but to apply these words so that we would believe it and live according to it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Wow. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, isn't it? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This phrase that so captures well the desire of the Christian to do what Jesus commands, and yet it finds it so incredibly difficult, is apt, isn't it? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This story reminds me of a story I recently heard about a computer programmer who decided to create a language translation program on the computer that you can buy on these little applications in your phone. He created one for the Russian language, and the time finally came for him to finish the program. And so to test the program, he typed in this very phrase into the computer. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He typed it out and out came in the Russian a phrase. So to test it, he highlighted that Russian phrase and asked the computer to translate it back into English. Are you following me so far? Okay. 
the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Out came this phrase. Highlight it, ask it to translate it back. And this is what came out in the English. Remember, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The whiskey is stronger than the beef. Now, if you think about it, it makes sense, doesn't it? The spirit is willing, oh, but how the flesh is weak. Clearly, the whiskey is stronger than the beef. What went wrong? What went wrong in this situation? Clearly, the computer program did not have an appropriate context or frame of reference to understand these words. Now, I wonder how often Christians, well-intentioned Christians, who want to follow the words of Jesus, go to passages like the one we just read, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies, and simply believe that as long as I try hard enough, as long as I do whatever I can to obey this literally, I'm good to go. And what do they find out very quickly? How hard it is and how often they fail. And so we go to familiar stories that are oftentimes second nature to us here in Jesus' teaching, for example. And we think we understand what it means without further explanation, explication, according to the context and according to, more importantly, the gospel. In fact, for some people throughout history, for some people these phrases like turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, and love your enemy was considered not only just the essence of Christianity, but for some, the essence of humanity. And so for writers and philosophers like Tolstoy and Thoreau, as they wrote, they had a profound effect on people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. to espouse principles of nonviolence and pacifism as if that's what it truly means to be human. And I'm sure you'd agree with me that responding to violence with nonviolence is a good thing. But is that what Jesus is saying here? Is that, what he's, is that what he's teaching here? Is that it? In our text this evening, I believe Jesus is calling his disciples like you and I to make a radical choice and not just a radical action. He's basically saying, if you want to be my follower, don't retaliate, but love your enemies. Jesus is calling us to radical kingdom living as we love our enemies through grace. You see, here on the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus, as you know, begins his teachings with this wonderful statements of blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the persecuted. And by doing this, he introduces us to the characteristics and traits of those who belong to this invisible kingdom that he brings as the king of kings. And in doing so, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he begins to lay out kingdom ethics, kingdom rights and wrongs, kingdom choices, kingdom beliefs, kingdom actions, kingdom words. These are not ordinary choices and words and a lifestyle that Jesus is introducing us to. It's an invisible kingdom that now he's calling us as his followers to make visible with our lives. And so he launches off into this, this, this passage of Scripture to explain to us the radical nature of kingdom living, of making the invisible kingdom visible. 
Let me say that again. He introduces us to the radical nature of making the invisible kingdom visible in our lives as we love our enemies through grace. So I want to introduce you to four themes that I believe will help us understand what Jesus is getting at here in this passage found in verses 38 through 48. Four themes, and I'm going to give it to you up front so you can hold me accountable, all right? First, the theme of confrontation. Second, the theme of expectation. Third, the theme of transformation. And fourth, it's a word I made up, the word The fourth theme is reflection. I'll get to there. So confrontation, expectation, transformation, and then reflection. All right? All right, I didn't make it up. I learned it from someone else. But it's it's a wonderful word that I think will capture everything. All right, first. So let's take a look at our passage today. Confrontation. What's happening here, first of all? Well, you'll notice as you go back into your Bibles that what we have here are the fifth and sixth sections where Jesus begins his teaching with a particular pattern that he began in verse 21. So if you scan back in chapter 5, verse 21, you read this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then in verse 22, but I say to you. Then he goes beyond just murder. He says, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then he continues on, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. Verse 31, so on. Verse 33. And here in our passage tonight, in verses, verses 38 to 42, and then verses 43 to 48, you have the fifth and sixth section where he begins this pattern of teaching. So what does he do here? He's saying, you have heard that it was said, and then he introduces you to an Old Testament law. And then he contrasts it, and he says, but, with this conjunction, right? Remember conjunction? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Right? <laughs> conjunction says, but I tell you, and he seems to be introducing something better, something more profound, something new. So you have heard this, and he quotes an Old Testament law, specifically here, from Moses, and goes, but I tell you, what is he doing? Is he contradicting the Old Testament law and basically saying, now that you're New Testament Christians, you can just throw away the Old Testament law, because I'm going to introduce you to a new and better way instinctively you all know that's wrong, then what is he doing? Very simply this, confrontation. Jesus is confronting the teachers of the law during his day that were taking the Old Testament law, misinterpreting it, and misteaching it to the people of God. Let me explain. For example, on this part where it says, he he quotes from Deuteronomy 19, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. What had happened was that these Pharisees and teachers and scribes were basically saying this, if someone mistreats you, mistreat them back. After all, isn't that what Moses said? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, mistreatment to mistreatment. Retaliation to retaliation. Do you see the principle that they're trying to teach? It makes sense, doesn't it? And in our fleshly desire, many of us want that. So you could imagine how many people in the first century said, yeah, that's a good one. I like that teaching. I'm going to go with that one. I'm going to go with that teacher. So I can exact revenge on people who mistreat me. That's what the Pharisees are doing. And then in the sixth section, you have heard that it was said, 
you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You see, what the Pharisees were doing, by the way, that's actually not a quote from the Old Testament. In Leviticus, it only says, you shall love your enemy. I mean, I'm so, you shall love your neighbor. But what the Pharisees did, they added an extra phrase because they reasoned to themselves, clearly God wants us to take care of our own people, the Israelites. We take care of our family, our clan, so we shall love our neighbor. So neighbor only meant those within our cultural bounds, our ethnic bounds. Anybody outside of that, sorry for you. That's what the Pharisees were teaching. Another reason why you know Jesus isn't contradicting the Old Testament law, but confronting the Pharisees is because of what he actually says. He says, you have heard that it was said, not you have heard that it was written. Very important distinction. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus does say that. You have heard that it was written, validating the law. He's always validating the law. He says, every jot and tittle will be fulfilled through me. So he doesn't contradict the law. He confronts, can we say this? The lawyers. Sorry, no, no, no jokes against the lawyers. These teachers who are misconstruing the law, misunderstanding the law, and misteaching the law. And so the people of God were basically being told, when you get mistreated, go ahead, regulate. Take care of business. Do what you need to do. Doesn't it make you feel good? And that's what was happening here, was this kind of... So Jesus is confronting these Pharisees and the people who are listening to the Pharisees and liking the teaching of the Pharisees. And you know what, friends? That's you and me too, isn't it? Closet Pharisees. Clearly, this was to misunderstand the purpose of the law. This law was actually meant, this law of Talion, this law of equity that was given to the people of Israel was meant to restrict and restrain personal vindictiveness so that there would be a law of equity. If you've been mistreated, you should be fairly, you should receive fair justice. It was a law of equal, fair justice. But it was nurtured by the, in, the, in the hands of the Pharisees into a law of personal vindictiveness and vengeance. You see, Jesus confronts the heart of the matter. That is, he confronts the matter of the heart. The heart that is so prone to hate and retaliate to anyone who mistreats us. And if we're honest with ourselves, you know I'm talking about Tim Lane. No, we know we're talking about <laughs> me, about you, about all of us. How when we're provoked, even by our daughter who runs upstairs, slams the door, right? What is our first response? Ahem, she's going to get it now. Jesus removes all these external layers in order to confront the core of the disease, the disease of our hearts that are so full of idols, idols of anger, fear, entitlement, control of comfort. And anyone who confronts that, boy, are they going to get it. And that includes those closest to us, right? Our spouses, our children, our boss, our coworker, our neighbor. 
how often our first response when we're mistreated, offended, how often our first response is one of hatred and one of revenge. And you know the feeling. This is Jesus' confrontation. Our hearts that are so prone to the sin of hatred and retaliation. And someone who knew this temptation well to allow the heat of the circumstances turn us into thorny bushes was Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon was a British Army officer captured by the Japanese at the age of 24. And in his autobiography entitled Miracle on the River Kwai, Gordon tells an extraordinary story of sacrificial love that had the power to transform. But life in prison camp didn't start that way initially. You see, Gordon was sent to work on the Burma-Siam railway line that the Japanese were constructing through the dense Thai jungle for possible use in an invasion against India. And unfortunately, against international law, the Japanese forced even officers to work at manual labor. And each day, Ernest Gordon would join a work detail of thousands of prisoners who hacked their way through the jungle and built up a track bed on a low-lying swamp land. Naked except for loincloths, the men worked in 120-degree heat. Their bodies stung by insects, their bare feet cut and bruised by sharp stones. Death was commonplace. If a prisoner appeared to be lagging, a Japanese guard would beat him to death, bayonet him, or decapitate him in full view of all the other prisoners. Many more men simply dropped dead from exhaustion, malnutrition, and disease. Under these severe conditions with such inadequate care for prisoners, 80,000 men ultimately died building the railway, which was 393 fatalities for every mile of track. Under the heat and strain of captivity, many of these prisoners had degenerated to barbaric behavior, even to their fellow prisoners, their fellow band of brothers. Gordon writes this poignantly, As starvation, exhaustion, and disease took an ever-increasing toll, the atmosphere in which we live became poisoned by selfishness, hate, and fear. We were slipping rapidly down the slope of degradation. Before, the patterns of army life had sustained us. Before, we had still shown some consideration for each other as fellow prisoners, as the band of brothers. Now that was all swept away. Existence had become so miserable, the odds so heavy against survival, that to most of the prisoners, nothing mattered except to survive. We lived by the law of the jungle, the law of survival of the fittest. It was a case of, I look out for myself and to hell with everyone else. The band of brothers had become broken. Jesus not only confronts the matter of our hearts that are so prone to hate, but he moves on in our text to express the expectations he has for those who want to follow the true meaning of the law. And so we move from confrontation of our sin, our hearts that are so full of these idols that reflect in hatred and retaliation, to expectation. Let's, look at, let's take a look at both of these passages again. First, in verses 38 to 42, he gives us four implicit commands through the use of story and illustration to reveal the radical nature of Jesus' expectations. Okay, So first, verses 38 to 42, 42, four implications of what it means to follow Jesus. 
And then in verses 43 to 48, four explicit commands of what it means to follow Jesus. All right? That's what we're going to look at. All right, first, verses 38 to 42. Four interesting illustrations that describe and reveal his expectations. First, he pictures a man being slapped on the right cheek. Would you do me a favor and place your hand on your right cheek? Place your hand. If someone were to slap you on your right cheek, how would one do so? Standing across from you. You could put your hand down. And I don't want you to slap yourself. Is this a left-handed slap? No. So it's a backhanded slap. That's exactly right. Why is that so significant? Again, context is so important in the first century. Did you know that in the first century, and frankly, even to this day in the Middle East, a backhanded slap is considered more violently offensive than a crime like murder or homicide or rape. Again, this is not our worldview. The Bible in the first century is not our normal worldview. In the Palestinian Semitic worldview, a backhanded slap was considered that grossly offensive. And so think in your mind how you would feel if someone in your family was murdered or raped. What's going on in your mind? Now, that's going on in the mind of the Jew as he listens to Jesus say, when you've been slapped with the back of the hand, when you've been grossly humiliated and offended, he doesn't say, retaliate, cheek for cheek, right? No, he says, turn the other cheek. It would have been shocking to his hearers. Did you know that at that time, if you were caught backhanded slapping someone and you went to court, the fine would be one year's wage. This is not a traffic ticket. This is a felony of serious proportion in that culture. And to that, Jesus says, this is my expectation of you who want to follow me. If you really want to love your enemies, this is what I expect you to do. When you've been so grossly mistreated, let it go. Turn the other cheek. Now let me stop here and say, does this mean through this principle that Christians cannot be involved with war, just war, anything? No. There are other passages of Scripture that help round out our theology and our understanding of just war and things like that. Jesus is giving us a paradigm, a perspective of how we should think, feel, and live when we encounter enemies who mistreat us. It's just a perspective and a paradigm, not a literal thing that we need to translate into every area of life. Okay? Okay. Secondly, he says, give away your cloak, right? Jesus pictures a man in court being sued. That's what's actually happening here. And what happened in the first century, if you were fined for something and you had to pay a fine, you did something wrong, you had to pay a fine, oftentimes if you didn't have enough money on the spot, you could actually take off your outer coat, give that as a down payment for money you would bring later. Now mind you, why is that so significant? In The Palestinian worldview, in the Jewish worldview, this outer coat was considered sacred. It was one of the most most precious possessions that any Jew would have. In fact, by Jewish law, if you let someone borrow this outer cloak, by sundown, you actually had to return it by law. That's how important the outer cloak was to the Jew. You should remember from an Old Testament story. Remember there was a brother who was despised by his other brothers because he received this amazing technicolor dream coat, remember, Joseph? 
It's this outer coat that was given to him by his father. Very precious. One of the most precious items that a Jew owned. And Jesus pictures a man in court and he has to give up this cloak. No, he says give up your, your, your shirt that serves as the... I'm sorry, sorry. He says give, when you have to give up your shirt as a down payment, he says take the more important thing you own, the most important thing you own, and give that up as well. I didn't explain that very carefully. It wasn't the outer cloak that was the down payment. It was actually the tunic, the shirt. But he says, when you do that, take the most prized possession and give that up as well. Loving your enemies means being willing to give up everything for the sake of the other. Then he says that he has this other picture that he prints or or provides. He says, go the extra mile. Again, this phrase is understandable if you understand the context and background. Remember, at the time of writing, as Jesus is speaking and when this is being written, Palestine was not a free land. The Roman army had come and taken over the land and, in, and given new laws to the, to the Jews. And one of the laws that the Roman army had, in, had given to the Jews is a Roman soldier had the right to make any Jew pick up their armor and carry it a thousand paces or a mile. That was Roman law. The Jew had to do that. So a soldier could say, Jew, pick that up and carry it one mile. It could have been armor, but it could have been anything. The Jews hated this law more than any other law. Because it publicly demonstrated that they were slaves to the Romans. You can imagine how the Roman soldiers would have taken advantage of this kind of law. Again, shocking, shocking expectations that Jesus has for his followers. If you really want to be my follower, if you really want to love your enemies, this is what it takes, this kind of paradigm, this type of life. Can you imagine what the disciples were thinking in their head? What was churning in their hearts, Lord? We can't. Are are you kidding Could they trust and obey? And then lastly, the last illustration here, Jesus describes his disciples or the expectation to give to anyone who borrows or to give to anyone who begs. This was not a legal duty for these early disciples. But Jesus masterfully teaches that this same law that restrains us from doing evil back also means going out of your way to do good to others. Do you see? It's one thing, as Jesus' followers, to restrain yourself from doing evil. It's quite another thing to go over and above that restraining, to then go over and above that to actually do good to people when they least expect it. The same law means both of these things. These are Jesus' expectations, just in this first section of 38 to 42. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling really burdened. But there's more, as if that wasn't enough of Jesus' expectations. In verses 43 to 48, Jesus is not as implicit through the use of story or illustration. He's very explicit about... Now, if you haven't caught the drift so far of my expectations, let me just lay it out for you. I mean, look what he says. He says, he starts off this section with, by the way, what I'm trying to say is, love your enemies. 
And then he finishes off the section with something that, again, is, is fairly easy to accomplish for most Christians. Be perfect. I mean, your heavenly Father is perfect. You should be perfect. Wow. Jesus, really? You had to go there, huh? I like the stories. At least that gave us a chance. At least it gave us a chance to pick up the armor and go. But again, he's not thinking just literally. He's thinking about transformation, not only of our actions, but ultimately transformation of our head and our hearts, not just our hands. Jesus wants to transform you from the inside out. He knows that. So when he lays out his expectations, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's calling us to ultimately call out to him in despair. Lord, we can't. Look what he says in verses 43 to 48. He says, pray for those who persecute you. And then in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, we read Jesus expand, Luke expands on what Jesus said. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And then in our passage, verses 45 through 47, he says, be like your father who is gracious. So in the first section, turn the other cheek, give up your cloak, Go the extra mile. Give to those who borrow or beg. And here in this passage, pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Be like your Father who is gracious. In sum, be perfect. Ah! We don't have time to go into too much detail about this, but look what Jesus is doing here and as well as in the parallel passage in Luke. Jesus commands us to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who abuse us. We're to pray with our hearts, to bless with our words, and to do good with our deeds. Is this our first response when confronted by those who are difficult? To underscore this, Jesus contrasts his followers with the Pharisees when he states the foundation from which his followers can love their enemies by stating in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Think of the logic. The logic is very simple. Children behave like their father. So children of the God of love, children of the God of grace, speak and act with love and grace, even to their enemies. And he uses the imagery of the sun and the rain as God showers all of his people Believer and unbeliever, with his common grace, the sun provides light and heat, right? To the good and the evil. The rain provides relief and sustenance. On who? The just and the unjust. If this is what God your Father does, will you follow in his steps? Will you trust and obey? And then in verses 46 and 47, he uses a rhetorical device to further bolster his case His argument is now from the lesser to the greater. He compares Christians who now have new hearts and new lives to unbelievers who do not have the Spirit of God. Jesus uses terms that were commonly used to signify those outside of God's grace and blessing, tax collectors and Gentiles. They're outside of my blessing, and yet they're able to do that with my common grace as image bearers because I created them in my image, and they don't even have the Holy Spirit. They haven't been regenerated by my spirit. They don't understand my grace, and yet they're able to do that. Why can't you? Wow. So here are Jesus' expectations. 
Turn the other cheek. Give up your cloak. Go the extra mile. Give to those who borrow. Pray for those who persecute. Do good to those who hate. Bless those who curse. Be gracious like your father. Shocking, isn't it? It was shocking, I'm sure, to these first hearers, and I hope it's shocking to you. Jesus' teaching here, however, would produce men and women that would turn the world upside down for this kingdom. Men and women who would understand that the key to these expectations, but also the key to the confrontation of our sinful hearts. You see, the confrontation of sin, the sin of our hearts, the expectation of the law would ultimately be transformed by a sinless substitute who would pay the penalty for our sins of not loving our enemies, but also provide the power to truly love. That's a mouthful, I know. Let me say that again. Confrontation, the confrontation of our hearts that are prone to this sin, as well as the expectation of the law to be perfect, would be ultimately transformed by a sinless substitute who would do two things. He would pay the penalty for us not loving our enemies, and he will also provide the power so that you can love your enemies. We move from confrontation, expectation, to our third point here, transformation. Having seen Christ's confrontation of our hearts and Christ's expectation to perfectly love our enemies, we turn to this point. The confrontation of our sinful hearts and the expectation to love our enemies can only be accomplished, how? Through the penalty-paying, power-providing transformation of grace that only Christ can provide. Christ becomes our penalty-payer and our power provider. And why is this so important, friends? You know this. It's exactly what I started with. Only the gospel can change you and me. Only the penalty-paying, power-providing gospel can change you and me. And you know who understood that? These gospel writers. See, the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, do something really amazing as they put their gospel together. See, they weave their story together to tell a message, a single unified message. We, because of our sin, cannot love. But Jesus comes to pay the penalty for that sin, but also provide the power so that you can love your enemies. And you see that in the way they weave their gospels together. I'm going to rush through this. So put on your seatbelt and hang on. He's going to try to show you how the gospel writers do this. Matthew and Luke understood. Remember, Matthew and Luke are the ones recording this for us early on about loving our enemies. They understand that this change is very dynamic and transformative. First, if you turn to Matthew 27, if you have your Bibles, I'd really encourage you to turn there. Matthew 27 and read from verse 27 on. An amazing correspondence develops between Jesus' commands, our inability to follow them, but then what Jesus does to fulfill them for us. Pay the penalty for us, but also provide the power for us. Guess what, friends? It's all about Jesus. Hallelujah. Verse 27 on. As I read this, follow along. Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. 
And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. They kneeled down before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Turn the other cheek. Verse 31. And after they had mocked him, they took his robe off and put his garments on him. Give away your cloak. And led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. Go the extra mile. Jump down to verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Give to those who borrow or beg. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. There's amazing correspondence here. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. And he, went out, he, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, what? Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Friends, on the eve of his betrayal, Jesus does what? He prayed for strength and resolve. He prayed. Jump down to verse 63. In chapter 22. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes and led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he, but, but he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Jesus blessed those who cursed him with the truth. Chapter 23, flip over to chapter 23, verses 32 and following. Chapter 23, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen ones, chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, 
If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Jump down to verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. See, friends, like his father, like his father, Jesus did the ultimate good, didn't he? On the cross, he defeated our greatest enemy. On the cross, he defeated death itself. For who? For enemies like you and I. On the cross, he defeats the greatest enemy of all. For who? For God's own enemies, me, you. Jesus turns the other cheek. He gives up his cloak. He goes the extra mile. He prays for those who persecute him. He does good for those who hate him. He blesses those who curse him. And like his father, was ultimately gracious to all who will believe through his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his enlivening resurrection. You see, friends, Jesus is not just a master teacher, but he's the sinless savior for you and I. He's the penalty payer, but he's also the power provider. In Luke 24, verse 44 through 49, Jesus says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then what does he do? He opens their minds to understand the scriptures. And he says to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And now listen carefully. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What is that promise? The Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are what? Clothed with power from on high. Clothed with power from on high. What kind of power? Resurrection power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, he promises to all of his children, including you and I. See, Jesus not only pays your penalty for not loving your enemies, but he goes beyond that. And he says, I'm going to now give you my own power, my resurrection power you can have through the Spirit if you believe. Lord, help my unbelief. I want to trust and obey. And friends, this is what you have. This is who you are. The confrontation of our sinful hearts, the expectation to love our enemies can only be accomplished through the penalty-paying, power-providing transformation of grace that only Christ offers and that we receive through repentance and faith. It is this grace that will transform you. And it is this grace that will transform those you counsel. And ultimately, it is this grace that will even transform your enemies. Because only that grace can. Not your persuasive words, ultimately, but it's the grace of God 
It's all about Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, ultimately in Christ alone. And you know who understood this miracle of grace? Was Ernest Gordon on the River Kwai. You see, though the strain of captivity caused many of these prisoners to degenerate to barbaric behavior, even to their own brothers, one afternoon a miracle happened that would forever change them. The Japanese guards carefully counted tools at the end of each day's work, and on this particular day, a guard shouted that a shovel was missing. He walked up and down the ranks, demanding to know who had stolen it. When no one confessed, he screamed, Then all of you die. All of you will die. And he raised his rifle to fire at the first man in the line. And at that one instant, one of the prisoners stepped forward, stood at attention, and said, I did it. The guard fell on him with a fury, kicking and beating the prisoner, who despite the blow still managed to stand at attention. Enraged, the guard lifted his weapon high in the air and brought the rifle butt down on the soldier's skull. The man sank in a heap to the ground, but the guard continued kicking and kicking his motionless body. When the assault finally stopped, the other prisoners picked up their brother's corpse and marched back to the camp. That evening, when the tools were counted again, the work crew discovered a mistake had been made. No shovel was missing. One of the prisoners then remembered the verse, Greater love have no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. Word spread like wildfire through the whole camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save the others. The incident had a profound effect. The men who for months lived like animals trying desperately to survive began to treat each other like brothers again. With no prompting, prisoners began looking out for each other rather than only themselves. Although to be caught meant death, prisoners undertook expeditions outside the camp to find food for their sick fellow. Thefts grew increasingly rare. But men started thinking less of themselves, finding ways to help others because of sacrificial love. Sacrificial love transforms. So what? Now what? We've seen Jesus' confrontation his expectation, and his transformation. Now it's time for our reflection. Let me explain. Reflection is a word made up of two words, reflect and action. And as Tim so aptly put this morning, if you catch yourself reflecting so much on your sin and your idolatry, you can fall into the pit of self-despair. Oh, woe is me. And you become inactive. But if you, get, if you fall into the trap of being overactive without thinking about what ultimately motivates you, you fall into the trap of self-righteousness. Either self-despair or self-righteousness. There's too much reflection or too much action. So what do you need? You need a balance. That's why you need reflection. You get it? It's good, huh? You can keep it. You can keep it. Balance is key. Now, loving our enemies, it's not easy, whoever they may be. And I'm sure many of you have tried. You've tried to love. You've tried to show grace but you often face resistance, rejection, frustration, mistreatment back. Any of these heat-filled situations, it's so easy to respond in thorny ways, isn't it? So easy. At best, what do you do? You ignore your enemies. At worst, what do you do? You retaliate. 
But as we've been learning, the gospel transforms us. A gospel of grace paradigm will ultimately lead to gospel of grace practice. That's the guarantee. That's the promise of God. And so let me, in the remaining time, the five minutes that we have, let me encourage you to reflect with two words. Remember and remain as you turn to Romans chapter 12. Remember and remain. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we look at Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, I believe, picks up on the same themes that you find here in our text today about blessing those who curse you, about doing good to those who hate you, etc. In words very reminiscent of Jesus, in verses 14 through 21, lays out for us five principles of responding to those who are our enemies. First of all, remember. I think one of the first things Paul does, not only in this passage, but throughout the book of Romans, before getting to chapter 12, is he's declaring to us, remember who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. Let me say that again. First, Paul says, remember who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. He says, remember your identity in Christ, because that'll change your life for Christ. God has forgiven all of your sins and has made peace with us through the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, because of the penalty-paying work of Christ, the power-providing work of Christ, you now have freedom and power to turn from sin and to live unto righteousness. That's the promise. Remember who you are. Or better yet, remember whose you are, right? And this faith will transform the way you deal with your enemies. This realization of who we are in Christ ultimately inspires us to do what? The unnatural, let's face it. Remembering who we are in Christ inspires us to do the unnatural work of dying to self and living for others. It's the only way. Regardless of who they are or how they treat you. But he also says, remember what you have throughout the book of Romans. You are united to Christ and now have, through His Spirit, all the benefits that are tied up in Christ. The perfect prophet, priest, and king. You have all of that. You have divine weapons at your disposal. These weapons include, as you know from passages like Ephesians 6 and Galatians 5, you have Scripture, prayer, truth, righteousness, the gospel. All in Christ. But also in Christ, you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Believer, you have all of that. And so you may be tempted to think that these weapons are weak in this world. But remember, who used these weapons first against his fight against Satan? Jesus. These are Jesus' own weapons. And he was victorious. And now he says, you have them now because I'm united to you. So Paul is saying here, remember who you are and remember what you have. But the second thing he does here is he says, remain in Christ. Not only remember who you are and what you have in Christ, but also remain in Christ as you deal with your enemies. 
And so quickly I'll go through this passage and give you five principles. And what's interesting here, I think Paul understood a great military strategy that the best defense is a great offense. You see, Paul, like Jesus, is not asking you as Christians to be passive in your response to enemies. He's encouraging you, calling you, inspiring you, challenging you to be active, to actually go on the offensive. Here are five basic principles that contribute to an effective and victorious offensive. First, verse 14, speak cautiously. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. When you're in conflict, you know this, you're going to be tempted to indulge in slander and gossip. You need to be slow to speak and quick to listen in the midst of conflict. Allow grace to control your response as you remember who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. Speak cautiously. Secondly, seek godly advisors. Verse 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You and I know that it's difficult and challenging to battle evil alone. You need to develop godly relationships with a community of God's people, the church. That's another resource you have for your offensive. These godly advisors will not only protect you and encourage you, but also correct and train you. You need them in your life. So first, speak cautiously. Second, seek godly advisors. Third, stay committed. Don't give up. Stay committed. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought. That's a very interesting word there in the Greek. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. This verse reminds us to stay committed, to not give up when it gets tough, tough, but to stay committed to doing what is right. You see, the idea here of giving thought to do what is right is to plan carefully in advance, anticipating challenges and objections that will undoubtedly come, and yet maintaining the integrity to continue to do what is right because it's right, even when it's tough. So stay committed. Four, set limits. I don't know if you've noticed, they all start with S. I worked very hard at this alliteration here, so please appreciate this. <laughs> Speak cautiously. Seek godly advisors. Stay committed. Four, set limits. Verse 18 and 19. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, say the Lord, says the Lord. When you're dealing with difficult people, it's also important to recognize your limits. Even when you continue to do what is right, some people refuse to recognize their sin and live at peace with you. Remember, you can't force people to do what's right. I have to remind myself all the time, or in fact, my wife reminds me all the time, Julius, you're not the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But how often we fall into that trap, don't we? Set limits. Know your limitations. You've done your best. And with godly wisdom and advice from your advisors, leave the rest up to God. So far as it depends on you. So set limits. And then lastly, serve unconditionally. 
serve unconditionally. Verse 20 to 21. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, this final principle for responding to extra grace-required type of people is to serve them unconditionally. Of course, with wisdom. You're not to be a doormat. You're not to be foolish. But as Ken Sandy puts it in his book, The Peacemaker, he says the ultimate weapon you have at your disposal is, quote, deliberate, focused love. Deliberate, focused love. Instead of reacting with spite to those who mistreat you, discern their deepest need and do all you can to serve that need. Each situation is very different. And as you can see here, I'm just giving you general categories and principles here. Much wisdom is needed, but Paul's encouragement to us here, following on the heels of Jesus' words in Matthew, is that we are to be committed to deliberate, focused love. Why? Because the love of Christ through you can have irresistible power. Irresistible power in deliberate, focused love. And you know who experienced this? Was Ernest Gordon. As the newly appointed chaplain to his fellow prisoners, Ernest Gordon experienced firsthand the transforming power of focused, deliberate love. One day, he and his fellow camp prisoners saw a group of wounded Japanese soldiers enter the camp on the back of trucks. They could see that their uniforms were encrusted with mud, blood, and excrement. Their wounds were sorely inflamed and full of pus, crawling with maggots. Clearly, they had been left in this predicament for weeks on end without any treatment. The prisoners were immediately moved by compassion for these soldiers. So without hesitation, one of the prisoners took a pail of water and began to clean the wounds of a dying Japanese soldier. Other prisoners began to join in, offering food and water. The guards desperately tried to prevent them from helping these sick men who so clearly were no longer fit for action. Apparently, whenever one of them died en route, he was simply thrown off into the jungle. The prisoners finally understood why the Japanese were so cruel to them. They barely cared for their own. Gordon and his fellow soldiers ignored the guards and knelt by the side of the enemy to give them food and water, to clean and bind up their wounds, to smile and say a kind word. Grateful cries of thank you were uttered. On being rebuked by another allied officer, the simple yet powerful words of Jesus came to Gordon. Love your enemies. Sacrificial love has transforming power. Such was the transformative power of grace that when liberation finally came, the prisoners treated their sadistic guards with kindness and not revenge, with love and not hate. When the victorious allies finally swept in, the survivors, looking like human skeletons, lined up in front of their captors. The liberating allied soldiers were so infuriated by what they saw, they wanted to shoot the Japanese on the spot. Only the intervention of the victims prevented them. The captors were spared by their captives. Let mercy take the place of bloodshed, said one of the exhausted but forgiving men. Not an eye for an eye, a limb for a limb, they all insisted. No more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need 
is forgiveness. Friends, such is the transformative power of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful words of life that you've given to us. We pray that as we understand it and as you apply it into our hearts through your spirit, that we would go deep, deep into our soul and that that we would be transformed from the inside out so that as we face a world full of enemies, even in our own homes, that we would understand the transformative power of grace, the grace of Jesus in us, Christ in us, our hope and our glory. Thank you for your promise to be with us to the very end of the age. This is what we cling to. You are the anchor of our souls. Thank you, Father. Bless these folks here as they now try to apply this into their lives for your glory and for the good of all. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2012, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.